Hi Chris, how are you? Good morning Rod, I'm very well. Here we are on a damp <laughs> Sunday morning. We're recording a bit early this week because I'm going away for a few days with my family for half term. Yeah, and we can't leave the listener without content, can we? So it's a bit odd to be doing it on a on a Sunday morning. It's all a bit bright in here than, than, than I'm used to. Those of you on the video feed will probably see more detail than ever. Yeah, I guess it is a bit bright, isn't it? Normally, normally we record on a Monday evening. So if we miss some amazing news like Apple buying Nintendo that gets announced tomorrow morning, <laughs> then we apologise for it. But should we get into it? So it's episode, what are we on now? 107 and it's the 11th of February. And we've got quite a bit of news and a small main show coming up. We do. We always say that, and then we run for an hour and a half. I'm just going to take you to task. You always say, when Apple by Nintendo, this is sort of some under uh, overwhelming dream of yours that it's actually going to happen. No, I hope they don't do it, by the way. Um, I would love Nintendo to stay fiercely independent forever and keep doing what they do. Yeah, current Apple, I don't think, would treat Nintendo very well. Anyway, let's dive in and do a little bit of follow-up. So... First off, with this bits of Vision Pro stuff we need to talk about within follow-up, and I think that's going to rumble on. I don't think we're going to break in, out into a separate section, Vision Pro. It will eventually calm down, but there's, there's bits and pieces. But the first thing I found, and I've highlighted this because I've been facing this issue too, is Christian Selig, who is the writer of the Ice Cubes app, I think, on the App Store, both for phones and, and all the rest of it, has been pointing out on Mastodon that he's been having issues with Bluetooth in Sonoma. And this week, I've been having lots of issues with Bluetooth and Sonoma, actually. My my Magic Mouse at work and my Magic Keyboard just randomly disconnect for no reason at all. I'll be typing away, I'll be halfway in a sentence, and it'll just stop all of a sudden. So it's been driving me mental. I've been having to go into the Bluetooth, touch the trackpad of my laptop, thankfully it's a laptop, and reactivate Bluetooth from the menu up at the top. And looking through this thread that I've posted to on Mastodon, we're not the only ones. Uh, that is interesting. That Why would that suddenly break, unless they've obviously done something in the background for maybe something up and coming i've not seen this but then i'm not uh, using my mac a huge amount i obviously have a bluetooth keyboard and mouse in front of us today i've got the apple ones um and they seem okay like i don't think i've had any issues but um, i'll keep it on it well there was a software update wasn't there we went to a point one of some sort this text bug that popped up in the ios versions as well so i don't know if it's related to that but it's not good yeah, I did install that update, so that's 14.3.1. How was that a gigabyte? <laughs> like, all it did was fix a, a potential text bug. It seemed rather a lot for some, what seemed to be quite a small, probably a small fix, if that makes sense. Yeah, I thought so too. But who knows what else they tweak while they're at it. Moving on, and another post from Mastodon from Craig Hockenberry, who's out having a great launch of the tapestry platform that I talked about last week uh, on the Kickstarter. That's gone quite well. I don't think they've hit the stretch goals yet, but, uh, you know, they're making progress. And he's just talking about investing in a headset and, you know, Apple having sold 200,000 users. If you capture 1% of the market, that's 2,000 customers for him. You know, that's probably conservative for the kinds of apps that he makes. So... It's just his return on investment for having to build something for Apple Vision Pro for the potential addressable customer base. And that's quite an interesting way of thinking about it, isn't it? I think, I can't remember the gentleman's name, but the guy that wrote Apollo that, that was killed off by the Reddit API changes wrote a YouTube app, effectively, for the Vision Pro that's done really well. And he had a, mass, a, a toot saying that he'd recouped his costs for the headset that he'd bought in one day for selling it on the Apple Vision Pro. Now that's terrific. He made us three and a half three and a half thousand, I can't speak on a Sunday morning clearly, three and a half thousand to four four and a half thousand dollars back. But that's unusual. Everybody wants a YouTube client. Not everybody wants, you know, the little note taking apps that the Icon Factory do and all that kind of stuff. So it's it's a different market. Yeah, I quite like the 
back of a fag packet envelope mass. I don't know what we call it these days. But I'm seeing as post and fags are, are dying off. We need to come up with a, with a new term because people won't know what that means. But I just quite liked his simple calculation there. Basically, he needs to charge $15 for the app to make it worth doing. And I don't disagree that people should charge a reasonable amount of money for an app. I quite like the idea of annual payments myself. I'd, I'd rather pay for an app annually rather than it coming out every month. And equally, sometimes I've been tempted to do the lifetime thing. I want to support developers. Same with podcasts because I sometimes buy like a mug or some merch because I think I, I don't pay to listen. So why don't I give some money in some ways and you're revealing your your upgrade t-shirt. I've got my ATP mug next to me that currently has pens in it. So... I think he's right. You should charge a decent amount for it. Otherwise, why are you doing all that work? And in this scenario, you have got to buy some new hardware. You had to buy a Mac to do the coding. You've invested hours. You may pay a contractor to do some coding. You may have to pay an artist to do the graphics. Charge a reasonable amount of money for it. I get that some people do it for a hobby, but if you want to turn your hobby into your dream, it's got to be sustainable. Yeah, and this move to subscription-based pricing, which has been driven by things like iOS apps, actually, the ability to do an app purchase and all the rest of it has really moved that. And also, I'd blame both Apple and Google for the freemium model becoming more and more of a thing where you do release an app for nothing and then you do the in-app purchases and therefore developers are putting a lot of costs up front in the hope that there will be a longer-term plan to do it. And consumers, we were talking before the show about password managers and more on that later, don't really want to spend money on stuff. You know, they think software is just a commodity that they get. They don't want to spend a monthly thing. But you and I and others were quite used to paying for the major version upgrades that you get every one year, 18 months, two years, whatever it be. And that was fine. BB Edit, for example, still use that model. So I think it's perfectly respectable to charge $15, $16 for an app for a platform that's small. And if you don't, you know, if you, if you can decrease it when the customer base becomes larger, fine. But I've got no problem with Craig Hockenberry doing this. I think it's the right thing to do. No, agreed. And something that actually took away from Mike Hurley was when he was looking to use various pieces of software, he was very much of the view, I want to see your business model. I want to know that if I invest effort into using your piece of software, whether it be you know an RSS client, a mail client, that you've got a business model that's going to be sustainable and therefore the app's not going to go away. So if I'm going to use your app every day or every week to do something, like we use Audio Hijack Pro to record this podcast, you want to know that it's going to carry on working, be supported and be invested in. And therefore, if you pay some money towards it, you know that you're helping towards that business model. You hope so. Moving on, apparently Apple Vision Pro is creating a new generation of what they call glass holes. So this was a term that was uh, coined by Google users using Google Glass, therefore glass holes that were out in the world doing dodgy things wearing Google Glass. And now they seem to be doing it wearing Apple Vision Pro. So I posted the video about Casey Neistat in the subway. I don't think that was that egregious really, he's just walking around the city. Fine, up and down stairs and blocking the stairs while he answered a text very slowly poking it out by looking at an individual letter on his apple vision pro keyboard maybe not ideal but people driving teslas are a very bad idea yeah and i've seen some posts on, on this tesla piece that, that you sent here some people saying oh i wasn't really doing anything with it i was pretending or it was just on pass through i don't really care you've got a computer in front of your face you should not be doing that whilst you're in a in a car I'm curious to know, is this going to be like people being self-conscious when they first started wearing AirPods, you know, many, many years ago when they came out, they were they were new, they were unique. How many people are we going to see sat on the train with a Vision Pro on? Um, I'm super curious to see what this will be like. I don't know if I would want to do it. I think I'd be very self-conscious and I think equally I'd be very 
concerned about being cut off from the world, if that makes sense. That's that, I think that's my whole reservation on the whole headset piece. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how this one plays out. And are we going to be sat next to people in offices that just completely blank us now because they're going to go get a cup of coffee and go, oh, I'll just keep my headset on and, and go and get a cup of coffee and, and not have to engage with anybody. So it's, yeah, I, I think they're right. If this becomes mainstream, as Apple platforms generally do, this version won't, but same with the Apple Watch. Over time, it doesn't take long before you see a lot of people wearing these things. Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? I think it certainly shouldn't be doing this. This is no glass on it in the sense that if, if the computer crashes for any reason, you're just looking at a dark screen. You're not seeing anything else. You're crashing your car. So that's two episodes of crash that you don't want to see. Um, I think it might become more socially acceptable. Max Tech, YouTube channel, have got done a couple of videos on sort of wearing these around the office, wearing them for eight hours a day and all the rest of it. And I know our next piece is on other people getting them in their hands that aren't the mainstream reviewers and their sort of takes on it. And... Little bits of it really quite appeal to me in the sense that you could go and get a coffee, turn it on, pass through, talk to people. I think there is a barrier by having ski goggles on all the time, speaking to your office mates. Frankly, you should take them off when you go and get a coffee and you need that kind of break. But yeah, that's it's interesting, isn't it? That, that When will it become socially acceptable um, to wear these kinds of things uh, in the office? And it's probably got to hit that sort of mass media sort of penetration. But all these things would have been the same, you think? You kids, you're there with your newspapers ruining your eyes, reading by candlelight, and then that becomes, oh, listening to the radio is rotting your brain, or watching the TV is rotten. So the next evolution is viewed by the previous generation as being the worst thing ever, and it's going to be terrible for humanity. Humanity is doing plenty of other terrible things to itself without, you know, Vision Pro or AirPods or television or radio. A lot of these things really spurred technological innovation and advances into the next sort of generation and what we've been able to do. So... I think I'm like you. I'm a bit reserved about it. Don't do this. Don't drive your car wearing one. But I can see them becoming more socially acceptable, certainly on trains and airplanes and coffee shops and things like that. As they begin, if it becomes a success and it works its way around the world, it looks a bit cooler than the Oculus one, though. It does, and I'm sure as we progress through, they will get cheaper. And once they hit the right price point, their market saturation will go up. But you know, we've seen it, like I say, with the Apple Watch. As soon as it started getting cheaper, more accessible, um, and you go through iterations and people can pick them up secondhand. It doesn't take long for Apple to penetrate a market. No, that's very true. What's next? Uh, next up, we've got Plex. He's not currently de- um, developing a dedicated Vision Pro app, which I was a little surprised about. Um, I'm not a big Plex user at all, but I'm surprised they're not doing this because Apple are pitching the Vision Pro very much version one as consumption device, very similar to the iPad, and look how that's turned out for them. But I'm surprised about this because Plex usually seem pretty good at keeping up with the tech. Um, They usually have good releases, very frequent. And you've got to think, is it that much work to tick the box and go make make a Vision Pro app? I know they've then got to support it um, and they've got to test it, but it's odd to say they're not developing one, whereas you'd expect them to go, we're not planning to release one right now, but we we are working on it in beta and seeing that we can make it a better experience. Yeah, I was a bit surprised by this. Plex are making some odd moves at the moment. They just released video rentals within the app as well, which as as the app designed for people who can who have their own home media libraries, to suddenly then connect it to the internet to go, okay, you can rent stuff within it as well, which I guess maybe get around some pir- piracy issues that they face. But it's a philosophical change for the company to go from that curating your own stuff to going to elsewhere. And they also had a feature recently that was just going to post out on the internet what you were watching. That That's potentially very worrying, isn't it? Wow, yes, given what people use Plex for. Like I say, I don't really use it. I'm just just aware of it in my purview. 
Yeah, I just thought it was interesting. And especially now if they're doing rentals, as you say, this is a media consumption device. They, this is prime content for it. So I'm, I'm amazed that they're not doing it. So, But hey-ho, um, it's probably the same when people did all the Apple Watch things. I think we had the opposite problem there. Every company rushed to do an Apple Watch app. And then we then saw years of them undoing their Apple Watch apps or slowly walking away from it or not keeping up with the platform changes and probably very low user base because I think it took a while for people to realise Actually, the Apple Watch isn't shouldn't have everything like the iPhone. It should have more workout-based apps. People aren't going to use it to read all their email, for example. So, in a way, I'm not surprised, but I think that decision will change. And I think give it 12 months and we'll be in a different place. Yeah, and we're going to talk later about YouTube or, or, or Alphabet have already made that kind of change. But yeah, I, I agree with you. Ultimately, it will change as more people have them in their hands. It makes no sense to do it yet. And companies are being more cautious with Apple at the moment, as we've repeatedly talked about on the show. Moving on, and just this was an interesting little thing, and as you look at uh, media on iPhone screens and your Mac screens and all the rest of it, how colours can change. So Cable Sasser from Panic, makers of fine software, and I think your little gaming handheld as well, right? That's Panic. That is correct, which is sat just here, which I should really fire up at some point. Yeah, you should. You haven't talked about that in a while, and you were so keen to get it. Anyway, Cable Sasser from the company has posted a picture of a highly fluorescent van driving along somewhere in America. When I look at this on my MacBook Pro screen, it's really quite a lurid color. It looks properly like a highlighter that you, you know, one of those Stablo highlighters you'd have got in a packet to, in green. But when I look at it on my less good HDR Philips screen that I'm, I'm using as my main screen here, it looks very washed out and it's just sort of a pale green color. So a little test of your Apple or, or other hardware of this that is quite cool that these things come over in photographs. Yeah, I think it's cool. I also think, however they've painted this van, it's amazing that they've got such a vivid colour on it. What a great bit of advertising. I'm on my LG Ultrafine display, 22-inch one that I've had for a long, long time. And it look, the image looks fantastic. And I've, I've tried it on my steward display and on my MacBook Pro. all looks really good that the colour is maintained. Um, but yeah, it's interesting that Photoshop, like I say, has, lo- has lost some of that colour. And I always used to remember Photoshop being tricky with colour profiling. And I'm speaking probably from 10 years ago when I used to use Photoshop. I've since weaned myself off it, thank you to Pixelmator, for being a much cheaper alternative that I'm happy to pay for, but just did, for me, did everything I wanted because I was never a, a pro user. But it is interesting, and it's amazing we don't really see images like this that much, I, th- I guess, that really pop. Um, but yeah, I, I enjoyed that because it did, did make me think, ah, this is why I have Apple displays because they, <laughs> they, they do have really good panels. Um, yeah. Yeah, wonder what it looks like in the Vision Pro. Uh, that'd be interesting. I think the color reproduction is not quite so good. I was listening to John Syracuse talk about wearing the Vision Pro in the shop and some of the color reproductions. And even Casey Liss was saying when he had it on and he looked and passed through down at the charging cable on his MacBook Pro, the orange that it was for charging wasn't what he was expecting at all. So I think there is little, there's, there's things to find out about the Apple Vision Pro and that sort of color reproduction compared to what we're used to with screens and certainly good televisions. Yeah, it doesn't have the full P3 color gamut, which is what Cable referenced in that post. I guess that they've got a lot of work to do there of how they pass it through, how they then process it. Because I guess to a lot of people, they don't make, and maybe this goes back to our Tesla drivers at the top, they don't maybe realize that it is being passed through. Maybe they think they're just looking through it. It depends how good it is. I've not worn one, so it's hard to tell. The only thing I was going to mention just briefly on it, it was interesting to listen to some podcasts. I think some people think whilst it is mind-blowing, it is still very much a version one product blurry text not as great for doing productivity on slow to type you've got to look where you want to click those kinds of things so it's going to be interesting i think to see how apple iterate on it It sounds like a good 1.0 but 
I would expect to see a lot of change in progression when we get to WWDC, assuming they're going to do a version 2 of Vision OS. You would have thought so, wouldn't you? Um, there's more to come here. I think that's what we always said. This is basically the developer unit that's out in people's hands now. So we'll have to see how it's received by the public. Obviously, various idiots are wearing them in Teslas. But uh, yeah, the, the, the reviews seem more positive than I was expecting. I got to say, I was expecting a bit more negativity about the glass hole sort of commentary about about people. Why are you doing this? But there's enough positive within it. And particularly, as you say, as a consumption device, it seems to have gone down extremely well. So I think it's a good 1.0. Anything else to say about follow-up? No, I think that's it. Should we get into news? Because we've got quite a bit, a smorgasbord, I guess, of news. Yeah, I think while we've been focusing on Vision Pro, we've kind of let the other areas slide, even though we did quite a lot of news last week. Maybe not. Maybe I'm being unfair to us. So moving on, the news. The first story is Apple haven't entirely ignored AI. We talked about Tim Cook mentioning in the shareholders meeting last week, and now they've actually released something. Obviously, it was in the phones and things before now on on various photo improvement bits of software and all the rest of it. But now they've open sourced a thing called MGIE or MLLM, Guided Image Editing, which is an open source piece of software that you can download or try where you can make visual edits to a photograph, for example. So one of the articles I read on it, for example, would say, here is a picture of sky. It's sunset over Los Angeles. Can you make the sky a little orange? Can you make the sky a little blue? And it will try and do those changes for you on the photograph while you're, while you're narrating it. And it's good enough that it will even change the reflections on the windowsills when you ask it to make it that sort of slightly more orange or, di- or different tints within that. So I think it's quite an interesting thing. I laud them for open sourcing it. I think that's slightly an apple at the moment, particularly. We're still waiting for FaceTime, Steve. But, you know, I think this is the kind of thing that they should be doing, but it's in an expected area. We know about photo editing from Apple. This isn't that surprising. I think it is a little surprising because why? Why? What's their motivation for open sourcing this? Are they trying to get some feedback ahead of baking it into something, get it more widely used? I think Apple's being cautious on the AI front because they want it to be correct, if you know what I mean. They don't want to be in the press for... I guess having, you know, hallucinations and, and things that we spoke about the other week. I wonder if they're trying to just let it iterate because it does feel a little too soon in, in my view for some of the AI tools to be as mass market and freely available as they are because they can be factually incorrect. So I wonder whether Apple are doing it for that reason. Um, look, we've got WWDC coming and apparently Apple is going to be a big year and I've, I've got a note on it later to pick up. But I wonder if they're just testing the waters ahead of some of this to get some feedback so that if they do bake this into a product, really shout about it, that they want it to be really good and maybe avoid any obvious pitfalls. That's my view. I think that's probably fair. Cynically, I also think they want to be seen for doing things and putting out little bits of piece of software like this without doing the big bang thing shows they have got skin in the game when it comes to the AI side of things. So when journalists can report, oh, and Apple are doing a thing too, in the same way Facebook have their llama model, then it shows they're playing in the game and they're not just doing nothing, which is the sort of common perception of what Apple's doing. Open sourcing it is a little surprising, but then they use lots of open source software. FreeBSD, the fundamentals of um, of macOS and iOS and tvOS, etc., etc., are fundamentally an open source operating system at its roots. You know, and they keep that side of things up to date as well. So it doesn't entirely surprise me, but slightly uncharacteristic for the moment. But yeah, I think it's skin in the game. Yeah, and it helps keep a bit of press going to show that we are, we are doing AI, keep, you know, and I think there's a lot of sceptics out there going, are Apple doing anything in this space? So, yeah, it'll be good to see how it unfolds throughout the year. I think this this will be the equivalent 
of Microsoft's year last year for Apple within the AI space. Microsoft had a big year in AI last year. Uh, Apple going to do a similar thing this year? It'll be interesting to see. Are we going to have a, you know, Apple's equivalent of Copilot baked into all all our devices? Are we going to have a button on our keyboard on our soft keyboards to to do this? Who, who knows? They've never done a Siri button, so uh, it's going to be interesting. Was there not a Siri button on the Touch Bar? I never owned a Touch Bar, so <laughs> and I think the people that did never used it. There possibly was, but but do you know what I mean? Though they never had that, so it's going to be really interesting to see where this one's going. I've got Siri on my Mac. I never use it. Yeah, I turned it off. I turned it off. Moving on, uh, other things Apple are doing is they're over- overhauling their Windows app suite. So iCloud, Apple Music, and others are now available for new versions in the Windows App Store. You can download them. And this is really the death of iTunes, isn't it? Oh, the long, slow death of iTunes. How long have we had Apple Music on our devices? I was using my Mac yesterday, trying to use Apple, Mu- trying to use Apple Music on it, and then it's so different to the iPad versions, to the phone versions. You kind of want them to do the same on the Mac. Can, we, can I have the iPad client if that's what I want on my Mac, but leave the historic iTunes-esque one for the people that enjoy that? I think this has taken far too long for them to do. That It feels like only in the last, what, 18 months they've really started moving their Windows strategy along to sort iCloud out to a modern um, look and feel rather than using all the old old stuff. Same with Apple Music, Apple TV. How has Apple TV taken so long to get a client on there? People like a dedicated app. So I'm amazed it's taken this long to get their services really done nicely on Windows and to use the window, the modern Windows 10 aesthetic, whereas they kept peddling the pre-Windows 10 era apps. Um, it just feels very slow for that company. Surely they've got a team that are working on this stuff. A one-person band would have churned it out quicker. Oh, maybe. Uh, anyway, the, iTunes does still exist in the sense that you've got to use it for managing your podcasts and audiobooks on Windows PCs. But so no podcast app. No, you know, it's not a perfect change, but it's closer. But, but surely that needs to come as well. Get Apple Books on there. Get Apple Podcasts on there. If they've done Apple Podcasts in the car, for, like in your Tesla, it's got to come to other platforms. Surely. You would have thought so. Moving along, there's a bit of an odd case appeared in Oregon where Apple appears to be lobbying against right to repair. So Apple, we, we talked about it at length on this show, would ship you uh, various suitcases with tools in to do repairs properly on phones. They've expanded it to the UK, as we talked about. So they seemed cautiously positive about doing the very minimum they had to do for right to repair. But this is a, a, a right to repair bill that came uh, to light in Oregon last Thursday, um, which is the first time the company has an employee actively outline its stance on right to repair at an open hearing. Despite, uh, and although they support the weaker repair law in California and obviously in the UK as well, they don't want this more wide reaching bill in Oregon. So I don't like that very much. No, this is not a good look, is it? Surely, with all of Apple's green credentials that they are very much peddling at the moment, I'm surprised that they're coming out and saying this. I think there needs to be the right balance. I think the right to repair, there should be some consumable right to repair items, like a battery, maybe swapping out SSD. However, I think you've got to get the balance right of when you start getting maybe to screens and, and more complicated pieces because you don't want it to jeopardise the, the product. But equally, I think there, there should be a much finer balance than what we have today. Yeah, I think they're beginning to get this balance wrong. And it's isn't it interesting how the 
feeling against Apple is beginning to change. I mean, it's not just you and I that are going about, oh, don't like that very much. It seems to me in the, certainly the tech press, that going from being the company that is kind of on your side, green, little bit money grabbing, but not a thing. Now they're entirely seen as money grabbing, it seems. The first default position people have of them is, well, they're only doing this to line their pockets. They're only doing this to get this. They're only doing this to get that out of it. They're only doing it to entrench their position. And that's a worrying shift for Apple, you know, from the plucky underdog to the, you know, the gorilla in the room that will ransack your pockets for the second you walk in through the door. It's not a great, not a great look, as you say. No, not a good look. And it, it kind of feels like the EU DMA bill that we've been talking about in that if Apple maybe had done something in this earlier, we wouldn't then be forcing them to make changes now. Whereas if they had some form of right to repair and did some consumable repairs and made it a little bit more accessible that we could have avoided all this but they haven't done that they've stuck to their guns of their way and it's quite expensive with apple care or, or getting the repairs done by apple and therefore they're now being forced to do it maybe in a way that they don't want to yeah and we see the way they feel about this with the way they price ram and the way they price ssds you know to go from eight gigs to 32 gigs is i don't know 800 dollars or something like that it's a huge amount of money so I can understand from a keep things in your, in your lining up in your bank account point of view. You don't want people getting into there and be able to stick in a $16 stick of RAM instead of the $200 one year charging. But it, this is more than that. This is about the ecosystem of your products and the way it's not used by us as new users, but five years down the line, 10 years down the line, as you hope your products last that long. So it's not very good. Yeah, agreed. Should we move on to WhatsApp and how it's going to interoperate with other yeah. apps? So we talked about this before. This is also a consequence of the Digital Markets Act. We talk about this a lot. I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to think we should maybe go on a course to learn a little bit more about the Digital Markets Act in terms of its laws and its, its sort of far-reaching influences. And if you were seen to be a platform within that, then you had to interoperate um, with other services. So in this case, WhatsApp has enough users that it needs to be able to interoperate with Signal or Telegram or one of the other messaging platforms. Apple somehow have managed to get out of this, and I'm not sure how. But basically all these things they need to interoperate. And this is just WhatsApp putting their first thing out there, saying the kinds of things they can do, they're going to do in order to carry that interoperation. Yeah, and this whole thing still blows my mind that there's going to be some very talented engineers that are going to make this work. I'm super curious to see how this works because are you going to be on WhatsApp and I'm going to be on iMessage? That's going to be interesting to see how that works. Part of me would like it, but then I haven't got the excuse of I'm not on WhatsApp, I don't want to join your your gang because i'm quite happy not getting all those notifications at the moment it's a tricky one isn't it and the levels of encryption between these things vary so you know whatsapp to fact uh, you know a very high level of encryption as does iMessage, as does signal yeah uh, whereas some of them like line for example the line messenger within um, china has different levels of encryption within it so how does that work how does it devolve down from one to the other and that's not new. We thought about these. These are the major problems about moving encryption keys around between services from the start. But what's what WhatsApp are saying? That's that's a sentence you don't want to say too quickly. Are that they're pretty happy with where they're getting to? Really, you know, they have an ability to do this. And I think I presume these apps are going to be full of warnings. Hey, somebody with Telegram has entered the chat. They use a different encryption standard. Please be careful for man in the middle attacks or or whatever. It's they're probably going to come with scary warnings, but. In principle, I think the EU are doing the right thing. It's far too easy to get to a size to get your customers on board and then enshittify your platform, which is what we've seen with lots of places doing. So making them be a bit more open with this kind of stuff, as long as they can get the security right, as long as it's got the appropriate warnings in it, is only can only be a good thing. Yeah, I agreed. If they can make it work, 
I'm curious, but equally, are we going to end up with a downgraded experience because they're being forced to do it? And it's that whole thing of, I think, companies being forced to do things. Whereas maybe if they were proactive, they could have done it in their way, maybe in a better way. Um, I don't know. It's going to be interesting. Yeah, I mean, that is the normal argument for these things, is that regulation stops innovation. But you could point at iMessage as a... Is it still called iMessage? You could point at messages and say, actually, they're well behind the curve compared to most of these other services. They only in the last couple of years brought in editing and tapbacks and you know the ability to delete messages and all those innovations. Stickers are all things that have been on these other platforms for years. So if you're just a messages user, you've missed out on a lot of these innovations. You know, for, from there. So that and that is in an ecosystem where Apple have total control. So they could have had all this innovation f- right out the gate, but they've sat there and they've done very little with it over the over these this period of time. So maybe in this case, in order to interoperate properly with these other things, they're going to have to raise their standards. So these basic features, editing, deleting, re- reacting to messages, you know, at an encryption level, are at least a standard amongst them all. And you're not having one particular messaging platform that's got the thing that the rest of them don't have. Yeah, I think that's fair. It's going to be, like I said, I think interesting how it all, all plans out and in the detail. Um, assuming Apple are going to be having to... No, Apple are not having to do this, are they? Because they're not deemed big enough, which like you say, is mind-blowing. Yeah, but I think, particularly in the EU, it's not a surprise. Most people have moved on to another messaging service. You you yourself say you're the weird standout who just uses messages for pretty much everything and not WhatsApp. I'd say 90% of the population use WhatsApp. Yeah, I'm very much an outlier in this world. Moving on, and speaking of outliers in the world, there's a little story this week about how TikTok is destroying itself from the inside out. TikTok's had a bad couple of weeks, I think. We were talking last week about the Universal Music Group withdrawing their music from the TikTok platform, and that affects all videos to way back when. You know, if you made your little dance video with some sort of musician that was part of Universal Music Group, that's gone now. You're changing internet history, for want of a better word, and let's face it, that's what TikTok was known for. But apparently, it's beginning to clutter its app up with unpopular features that users don't want. They're messing up the partnerships, like with Universal Music Group and others. They seem to be struggling a little bit all of a sudden, despite having a vast number of users. Yeah, it's interesting seeing them because it's permeated through to me. I'm not a TikTok user, um, but yet here we are talking about TikTok. And it does seem like they're trying to work out where to go next, I think. They've made it in you know, the viral space, the, the, the shorts, the portrait videos. They're now looking at adding widescreen in there. They're probably chase, wanting to chase down, I guess, YouTube because surely that's got to be their next biggest competitor. Equally, YouTube have introduced shorts and are trying to, you know, chase TikTok users. So I guess it makes sense that you've got two companies trying to trying to chase each other because TikTok's coming at it from one angle. Uh, YouTube's come from the other with, you know, like I said, with the widescreen videos, that you know, the more sort of blog-esque videos, the reviews and everything. And I'm not surprised by this because if you're TikTok, where's your next play? How do you keep growing? You know, they've had phenomenal growth, but they've got to keep it going, haven't they? And maybe this is how they do it. But the problem you have with that is at what point do they lose their core user base and actually, actually end up losing users? And look, this is possibly what Apple are going through too. Apple, as you said, earlier on in the show apple were the startup and the, the underdog they're now not in that position at all and actually some of their decisions are a little bit egregious yeah a little bit egregious <laughs> slightly dead a little bit egregious yeah that's that's quite an interesting with it i mean you've got capitalism in a nutshell here haven't you you must always have growth 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 and therefore you've got to change things around all the time to maintain that growth you've got tesco's they've rearranged the aisles because they want to get people back in the shop you know it's it's capitalism rampant capitalism but 
by doing that, they're changing the things that brought those users to the platform. I think Instagram are a good example of that, where they did start trying to add in features. It wasn't just people taking pictures of their lunch all the time or that one sort of charming moment. The ads came, the little video features came, the sort of microblogging came, all the things that they tried to shoehorn into it, and they started losing users because that's not what the users were there for. They were there for the nice pictures of your lasagna. And TikTok are doing the same thing, where they've gone from... You know, a little dance video that was a craze and a bit of search through to, okay, now, as you say, we're going to shoot it in a different format. We're going to let you have 30-minute videos. We're going to start to compete with YouTube. We're going to build in this, that, and the other feature. And that's not why people join TikTok. They join to do the little 30-second dance clip. And they want to see other people do that. And they want the algorithm to get a little bit better at surfacing that or suggesting new dance things to them. But that was their audience. And as soon as you start abusing the audience, they begin to leave and they consider alternatives and they go elsewhere. And that's the story we're seeing over and over. And it's the fight between building the walls of your walled garden high enough before your users realize they're in the garden or just keeping them happy and giving them what they wanted. And and like I say, to me, I think it's an allegory for capitalism in microcosm that you can keep the existing users you've got you might need to sacrifice sacrifice a little bit of the hockey stick growth that the market wants to see, but you'll entrench your platform. The worry is you get bought by somebody worse. But I think Snapchat, for example, have managed to navigate this a little bit better, most of the, mostly. Yeah, no, it is interesting. And Snapchat's one, I don't think you or I use it, but it's one that's kind of passed, definitely passed me by, but it's equally not in the news that much. They had, they've had moments, but equally they seem to be just carrying on in the background. They are. And talking about something that's carrying on in the background, it's just a little rumour that Apple is still working on foldable phones and iPads. That's not a shock, is it? I don't know how this is news. Surely they should be working on them and they should be telling us when they're releasing one rather than this. They seem very, kind of back to the AI piece, very slow on looking at the market around them and keeping up with it. But again, maybe they want to do it in a way that is really meaningful. And I guess there is software and hardware engineering in here, but surprised that this is news that they're still working on it. It's not dead. Like they should 100% be telling us they're releasing one imminently. But um, I'm surprised that we've not got more rumors for this year of the iPhone Ultra is going to be foldable. I think Apple particularly struggle with, they're going to have the same problems everybody else has got. So you look at these devices, they're fragile because they fold and they've got, they've got creases in the screen because they fold. Consumers don't seem to care. They just want the nice portable device that they can snap down to a different size and get on. Get over Apple. Make it robust enough so the hinge isn't going to break. Samsung seem to have done this now in their fourth or fifth generation of these things. Motorola have coped with it as well. Yes, the first couple of them were dodgy, but you don't hear many mass market stories of these things falling apart. I guess not as many people buy them because they're expensive, but they're good enough now. And in fact, if you look at some of the reviews from Marquez and others, they are more than good enough. You know, you can buy them and get and use them. Maybe not. Maybe don't buy the Google Pixel Fold. That's been slightly, slightly more controversial. But the Samsung devices in particular seem to be rugged enough, good enough, and give the extra features that people want from these kind of devices. Come on, Apple. The time is now. Uh, agreed. And they're a lot more uh, prevalent. Certainly in my office space, I'm seeing a lot more people with Fold devices. They are starting to reach, as as their price comes down, secondhand models, they're starting to be a lot more popular in the marketplace. And I think Samsung have done an amazing job iterating on it. I'm still amazed when I see one in the office and the, you know, my colleague just flips it out, you know, and click, clicks it in. I don't know what the right terminology is. And there you go. He's got a phone that's twice as big as what it was five minutes ago. It's fantastic. Yeah, they're super cool. Moving on, other things from Apple. We've got more stuff in the 17.4 beta that's come to light. So the first one is the fixing the weird reactions feature. 
I was getting hit by this a lot. I've disabled it almost everywhere now, but occasionally I'll join a Google uh, meeting as opposed to a, a Zoom or a Teams that I'm more used to making, and I'll, I'll do something that isn't a thumbs up, and I'll get the thumbs up and the fireworks going off and all the rest of it. Have you been hit by this much? Uh, a little bit, and occasionally it can be very inappropriate when it happens if you're having an awkward meeting and suddenly you've sent balloons up. Um, a little bit, but not too much, I must confess. Obviously, I'm using it on my iPad predominantly. Yeah, so I'm not surprised they're making some changes here because we've had feedback from our colleagues across our, you know, our work environment that why why is all of a sudden balloons happening? Because I don't think the feature was terribly well publicised. They should have had a splash screen a bit more just to re-emphasise. Look, if you do this on a video call, it can do these effects. It is quite cool. It is good, and I've enjoyed using them comedically. But it's when they misfire that's the problem. It's so. No, I don't think it's hit and miss is the world. It's such a gimmick. You know, you, you do it for a couple of times and you first realize it's there, but you don't need it a lot of the time. You know, Zoom is a feature which we use Zoom for the video part of our call and the recording of it that will give you the emoji. Like if you're clapping somebody in a meeting because they've announced something very, very good, it will do that for you based on the recognition you've got. And I think that quite muted response is, is not a bad way of doing it, actually. I don't need fireworks behind me a lot of the time. So it's a whimsical feature and we're always saying Apple should add more whimsy, but I feel they got the tone a little bit wrong with it. Yeah, potentially. So I'm not surprised they're doing some work on this. Another thing they're doing work on, look at me with the segues this week, is that iOS 17.4 seems to remove web app support for iPhone users. So what this means is once upon a time, you could visit a website, you could say add as a web app to your iPhone screen, and it would give you a dedicated launcher, often using that website's icon, as the sc- so it looked like a normal app on your iPhone. That came with all sorts of extra bonus features, like it got rid of all the Safari Chrome around the edge, so it behaved like an app, and you could have in-app storage. So Amazon used this, for example, in their Kindle web app, so you could download the books directly to the web app on your phone, and you could read your, your, you know, your Kindle stories inside of the web app before there was an actual Kindle app. And Apple were pushing this as, oh, you, don't worry if you can't have access to the app store, your app's going to be a little bit dodgy, that we're likely to review it, just do a PWA web app instead. And for the EU users, at least, they seem to have stopped this. Yeah, I find this a bit odd because they only just brought that functionality to the Mac. It seems very strange to me that they're now taken away in the EU. I, I can't understand why this needs to be removed. So I've read two things about it. One is this is malicious compliance on the part of Apple as well, is that there's some part of the law that says, you know, these need to be interoperable as well, or you need to resolve what browser engine that these kinds of things will be running on. So when Google Chrome or Firefox come to iOS within the EU, they're going to need to be able to do this kind of thing as well. And Apple are being a bit malicious and saying, no, this is actually a Safari thing, or this is actually a Google Chrome thing, or as part of the browser choice. So it's slightly confused messaging because Apple haven't come out and said anything about why they've done this. So we're all making assumptions until we know why. And why have they only done it in the EU? Well, it seems related to the Digital Markets Act, doesn't it? So, but again, I think that malicious compliance part is probably accurate. They're doing things in the meanest, least forgiving way possible uh, whenever it comes to EU part of this this update. So, yeah, it's a bit of a worry. Yeah, it's just Apple being Apple at the moment, I think. And it's not, as we've discussed, it's just not a good look and we can't condone it. No, we can't. So there's a couple of links within the show notes for them removing these web app supports, and Michael Sy has done a big piece on all the various bits of media on it as well. Uh, moving on, do you want to tell us about free USB sticks lying around in your drawer? They're all bad, and you should throw them in the bin. How's that? <laughs> that's probably that's that's not a bad summary, actually. It's not a surprise in some senses that the three things you got at conferences or just the old one, old very low capacity ones that are lying around are, are rubbish. 
Yeah, I was surprised to see this come up because I can't even remember when. Well, actually, I do know when I last used a USB stick. I had to install Windows 11, and I just made a USB stick for somebody to to wipe a hard drive and install it. But no, the, any free one you shouldn't use because you could end up with some malware on it. It could phone home to, to various uh, states that, that you don't want to be phoning home to. Um, and equally, yeah, the storage might not be any good. And um, The article is quite interesting because they're saying you shouldn't, you know, f- fill it up to maximum capacity because you may end up with, with like bit rot and things. So just if you've got old USB sticks, throw them out, especially if they're free ones. If you need one, go and buy a good rep reputable one from say sandisk or whoever but um the free ones just just don't use them especially if you're putting anything on it that is um, very important to you yeah there's quite a good link in the article about i'm going to read this it's quite a long one the market for affordable pocket size storage has proven itself to be a messy one over the last few years high capacity storage is in fact getting cheaper but not in every corner at least not when you look closely in mid 2022, a 30 terabyte external SSD was listed on Walmart and AliExpress for just over $30. Inside, there were two micro SD cards hot glued to a USB 2 board and loaded with firmware that both misrepresents itself to Windows and simply rewrites its limited space over and over as you copy to it. Wow. Rubbish. Wow. It's just awful, isn't it? Just, yeah, just don't use them if you can avoid it. Yeah. Dangerous rubbish. Moving along, Mozilla is continually trying to reinvent itself. It has a new CEO this week. We talked about its falling market share. Makes me very sad because I think it's a terrific browser. But they keep coming up with other little bits and pieces of services in order to keep themselves relevant. This latest one is a service that claims, for the princely fee of $9 a month, that it will go out to data brokers and try and find where your personal information has leaked and try and delete it, or at least ask them nicely to delete it. This is stable door horse bolted stuff as far as I'm concerned. If your data has leaked, it's in every hard drive on every bit of the dark web across the across the internet. So uh, Mozilla going off and removing it from one service isn't going to do anything. Uh, I think I was in a slightly different place to you. I think part of me was thinking, you know what, this might be worth it because then I get less cold calls. If it starts coming off as services and data feeds, then it, it won't happen instantly. But maybe over time, it would actually start to reduce because I do often ask people, how did you get a hold of my mobile number? I don't give that out to anybody. Um, and they're like, uh, it was on your LinkedIn. I was like, that's not on my LinkedIn publicly. So how did you get it? And they're like, uh, we take feeds from mobile places and, and squish them all together. So part of me was thinking, maybe I should sign up for this and try it out. But yeah, I don't know. Um, I'm curious to know whether it's any good. And I'm also curious to know how long will it be around for? And that's more the more crucial thing. I think a big company like Google kills apps faster than you can blink. So I think if this, for example, was an initiative of the previous CEO, who's now gone and they have a new one in, maybe this is one of the things that will be up against the wall. What Mozilla, for me, needs to be good at is making a really good browser that's compelling and a, a good alternative to Safari and Chrome and, and the others that are out there. That's their core feature. That's what everybody knows them for. Yeah, they vaguely make an email client. Yeah, they vaguely do Pocket, the bookmark saving service but everybody knows them as the browser company. So back to what we were talking about before, be good at what you're good at. Yeah, sometimes uh, focusing on your core business is better than having distractions. Side note, Tesco are closing, are selling their Tesco bank because they just want to focus on their core business. I think we've seen this with a lot of organizations. They've got big, they've diversified to demonstrate growth, and then they're like, well, actually, our core business is big enough. Let's focus on that. Yeah, moving on, uh, iOS 17 hasn't gone as well as iOS 16 in terms of getting installed on devices. This surprised me slightly. It didn't, it didn't for me. And the only reason I say I don't think it surprised me is because there's not that many, you know, real big tentpole features of like, I must install iOS 17 because I'm going to get X. Um, But we are now, what, six months into it. 
so I am a little surprised that Apple aren't being more aggressive of pushing it out. I certainly know where, where I work, as of tomorrow, we will only accept iOS 17 as, as the, the platform you can log into on your iPad or your iPhone as a minimum. Um, because we're trying to s- squash iOS 16, we don't need anymore. One reason why it might be a bit slow is it does su- drop support for iPhone 7s, 8s and 10s. So the bar, bar is being raised quite significantly there, I think. So maybe that, that's part of it. I'm curious to know when iOS 18 potentially comes out this year, are they going to keep the minimum requirements the same and start listening to what Google are doing, saying there'll be seven years worth of support? I'm yeah, curious to know how that's going to play. Yeah, that's a tricky one. So it's about 10%, maybe a little bit more than that, less installed this time in, in 2024 compared to iOS 16 was in 2023. So yeah, that is, it's definitely slower. And I agree with you, that's a very valid reason as to why it might not be. I still think of the iPhone 10 as being a new iPhone. Uh, agreed. Anybody that, any phone that doesn't have a touch, a home button on it, I think, oh, that's quite modern. But actually the iPhone 10 came out a long time ago now. Yeah, you're not wrong. Uh, moving along, trouble for Microsoft. Uh, they sell their BitLocker service, which is an encryption feature uh, for Windows so to keep all your various files and passwords and things like that safe on the platform. Um, you can crack it in about 10 minutes using a, a Raspberry Pi Pico. That's not the best level of encryption I've ever heard of. And a Raspberry Pi Pico is, what, about £20 to buy? Um, Less. And is not a you know, gargantuan computing powerhouse, so not a good look for Microsoft here. No, it's not. And it's a very specific hack, just to be slightly reassuring for Microsoft. You've got to have the trusted platform module and the CPU separate, but they are on lots of computers. <laughs> you know, It's only recently since Windows 11 has come along that they've mandated it's all got to be in one thing. And in fact, even then, I think the trusted, as long as there is a trusted platform module, you can get on with it. So not all CPUs contain this. So this is a bit of a worry, and it just shows we trust the platform vendor with how secure our operating systems are, unless they're open source ones like Linux, where it can actually be independently tested, of course. And both Microsoft and Apple not doing so well on the security encryption stuff at the moment. No, it's an ever-moving feast, though, isn't it, I guess. But it'd be interesting to see what Microsoft do. Can they do anything to combat this? Will there be any firmware updates? I don't know how the BitLocker piece works, but it's going to be interesting to see. Do they respond? Yeah, it will be. But uh, well done for the security hackers who did this kind of stuff. I really, it really impresses me when you can do it so quickly, so efficiently, with not a lot of money spent. Yeah, and it is. That's the thing. I think it's a twenty-pound give or take device, not a twenty-thousand-pound device to break a very common um, encryption. Yeah, and in ten minutes as well. That's no time in security world. No, there's nothing. Uh, moving along. Uh, Apparently, uh, Google and Mozilla aren't happy with the new iOS browser rules. This isn't a surprise. I'm not, you know, they are, of course, the major competitors. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's not news. It's got to be better for them in in a small step in that you can now have your browser engine. But are you going to do it for the EU only? Um, you've got to think that Apple longer term are going to do this wider I do think this is the beta way of testing it in the EU because they've been forced to. You've got to assume it's going to happen. Excuse me, it's going to happen a lot, a lot wider across the world. But I guess it depends how long is that going to take. And are companies like Mozilla and Google wanting to run two variants of their browser engine on iOS, or will they just leave it as it is until it's worth doing? Yeah, I can understand why they're upset about it. It's it is very locked down, and if you choose to move to those other marketplaces off the app store, then you can't be on the app store anymore. It's a binary choice, isn't it? 
So Mozilla's not happy. Google backing up Mozilla said, strong agree with Mozilla. Apple isn't serious about supporting web, web browser or engine choice in iOS. Their strategy is overly restrictive and won't meaningfully lead to a real choice for browser developers. I think that's fairly accurate. I, I understand why they're upset about it. I mean, Apple has it so locked down on iOS with Safari. And Safari, for all Apple say they improve it every year, doesn't get the features. You and I, I reckon, how many alternative browsers have I recommended on this podcast over the years? You a lot. Me, I just live with Safari. I think you're mad to do so. But I'm going to recommend another one today, actually. I talked about it a couple of weeks back. But there is innovation in in browsers and platforms. And by Apple, we, we talked about this earlier in the show, by Apple locking it down in this way, they're not really not innovating. Yes, it's fast enough. Yes, it's good enough. But it's not as good as it could be. And they're not being pushed to it. And they're not being pushed to really innovate out. In the same way we say Windows users sit down and install Chrome the second they get in front of it. They don't want Edge. I wonder what proportion of Mac users do the same. Because they can on the Mac as opposed to they can't on iOS. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I don't know actually. That could be a little question for another day. Anyway, moving on and just a very quick story uh, to top up what we were saying before. YouTube is actually planning to develop an Apple Vision Pro app, but use Safari for now. Not a surprise. Yeah, not a surprise. I mean, like I say with Plex up front, surely even if you haven't got ready now, you're going to signpost that it's coming at some point. Um, I found this very bizarre. I agree. Yeah, it just takes, I think it'll take time and more things will be there. But I, I do think there's a, a rift, a metaphorical rift between Apple and some of their previous bigger customers about giving them power on another platform. I'm sure Google have their own designs on the VR space in the same way Meta do. I'm not surprised Meta would be a bit reticent in bringing their apps into it, particularly in light of the DMA and all the things that would, to distribute a free app is going to cost them a huge amount of money. Why would you give them another platform to do that on? Yeah, yeah, that is true. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to see how Vision OS lands, like I say, 12 months from now. And yeah, how many How many parties release for it or just use their iPad just point you out you could just use our iPad app because I'm surprised YouTube are pointing people at Safari and not the iPad app why wouldn't they make that available in compatibility mode it makes no sense to me it'd be interesting to know their decision there though because are the compatible iPad apps any good or is web browser better so strange that one that they're not doing that because you'd have thought they'd want to keep you within in an app of some shape you know with media such- controls and things yeah, I mean, it's such a bad user experience to use Safari rather than a YouTube app because you can't, if you're a YouTube premium subscriber, you can download YouTube content within the app. So if you're going to go on a flight or you're you know, going to go and sit in a hotel room for a while without wireless, you're knackered. You, you, you can't use the YouTube website. You ha- you'd have to use the app. So it's an interesting thought. Do you reckon companies like YouTube are surprised how many Apple have sold so quickly? Because maybe they thought it's too expensive. It's a developer device. You know, we'll wait till mainstream, but maybe they've looked and gone, actually, way more people have got these than we, we'd anticipated. It's really hard to say, isn't it? There are a large num- number of Apple developers who were going to buy one of these. There are a large, you know, if any company has early adopters as Apple, they'll they'll spend lots of money to get in on the platform. You probably look at Sony and how they've done with their VR headsets. Not great. You probably look at the HTC Valve thing. For, uh, not great. That's a thousand pound headset. What didn't go down well. And Oculus, I think, have done better. We're getting them into the mainstream. But it's still not very mainstream, is it? So there probably is a certain, huh, there was an appetite for that. But it's not the first six months of the Vision Pro are going to be telling. It's the next six months. that the People who wanted it, that pent-up demand will be there. But after selling out the 200,000 units or whatever, what happens next? There'll be another bump when it goes worldwide. But it's really, will it have that mass market penetration is what we're waiting to see. 
Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. And certainly for me, Meta is the one I hear most about from non-techie people going, oh, my child's bought this and, and families have oh, we've got a, a headset, we use that. But it is just the Meta one. I barely hear anybody with the others. Yeah, fair. Can you tell us about the wire cutter and Apple News? Yeah, I used to love the wire cutter, and I think a lot of us did before it got purchased. But I'm just saying it's back on Apple News now, um, and this follows The Athletic coming to Apple News. So it's interesting that Apple News Plus is getting some some new content, sadly very American-focused. But um, I actually quite enjoy some of the Apple News Plus stuff. However, there's probably not enough there to recommend anybody buy Apple News Plus if you don't get it as part of the Apple One bundle. Interesting, I walked past a shop here in the UK the other day and it was advertising Apple One and it basically went, you know, you get Apple Music, you get iCloud Plus, TV Plus, and then it did not mention News Plus as as a benefit, which seemed odd to me because why wouldn't you mention it? It is a benefit. Um, There you go. It is a benefit, but I don't think they do a very good job with it. I, you know, the interface drives me batty. I think it's it's an appallingly written app, frankly. So I'm not surprised that they're not the proudest. Yeah, and it's one they bought off another company and yet seem to take a long time to roll it out and then haven't really iterated on it, I don't think, in a meaningful way. Um, I do use Apple News quite a lot, I must confess. I check it most days just to see what's going on. I've got it tuned, I think, to give me lots of F1 detail and a um, bit of general news. So I actually quite enjoy the app, I must confess. Sorry. Fair enough. I'm glad the wire cutter's there. I think also it's had its day as well. There's probably a whole piece we could do another time about how mainstream media is probably dead in some senses, particularly sort of print journalism and things like that. And it's it's only those that are very good that are going to survive the jump over to the, the, the proper offline or online media of the future. Anyway, do you want to tell us about uh, iOS 18 and Vision OS inspired design change? Yeah, so I was just thinking about this. There's a sketchy room that says iOS 18 might have Vision OS inspired design, which to me, I was thinking about, I thought, actually, that kind of makes sense because if they're struggling for adoption, do you know what gets people to adopt really quickly? Change how it looks. And then what we have seen with Apple is they are unifying how things look and feel, how things work. I was thinking about Stage Manager just yesterday of how they brought that out on the iPad and on the Mac. And basically, it's how you interface on Vision OS. So I wouldn't be surprised if they do want to have more conformity. I agree, Stage Manager on the Mac is iffy. On the iPad, I use it because it's all that's there. But I'm not surprised they want more conformity conformity across their platforms because you want somebody to be able to pick up their phone, know how to use it, maybe go to their Mac, know how to use it, go to their iPad, go to their Vision platform, and actually a lot of things to be in the same place. I think it's taken Apple a long time to get there. certainly hardest for them on the Mac because there's a lot of history there. But they are slowly, 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 every year, chipping away at that you know, seamless way the, the platforms work. They've all got a control center. They've all got some form of dock. Um, they've all got an app launcher a lot of the apps are the same across the platforms so i think this is interesting and may like i say may solve the whole adoption thing i think that if they do change the interface a little bit it may well drive up the minimum hardware requirements because you've got to assume that a six seven year old phone won't be able to run this but yeah curious to see if they do this and it would make me install a beta if they've changed the interface because it's great to play with it You'll install a beta anyway, though. They don't need to do that. You'll have a beer. Yeah, fair point. <laughs> uh, my, I don't have a lot to say about this. I think, of course, you want to unify your platform to a certain degree and you don't want people to be familiar. But I enjoyed scrolling down through the uh, article that's linked to on uh, Mac Rumors to see what is a screenshot of Mac OS X beta. I can tell it's Mac OS X beta because the Apple menu is dead center in the middle of the, the toolbar at the top. But just look at that Aqua interface and the sort of brushed glass and all the rest of it that was on there. Those were the days. 
that is a beautiful interface and we have lost a little bit of that as it's got flattened over the years sadly though that interface was ahead of its time because it was just too slow wasn't it when it when it came out but it was beautiful it'll be interesting to see if we ever go back to any of that because everything seems to have a renaissance at some point it does i love the 3d looking folders that was just a nice touch and the finder window itself just looked quite elegant actually it was beautifully crafted i guess though when i was going to say mac os 10 but it wasn't it was OS 10 came out they only had one major operating system to worry about whereas obviously life's very different now I would love to know inside the sausage machine how do they bring weather app to all their platforms and how they manage that how do they bring you know like an iCloud enhancement that they've got to deploy across Mac iPad iPhone vision you know how does all that work it'd be super interesting to see inside it would but the answer is they don't Look at look at Apple Music Classical. They don't. They just bring one app to one platform and they leave it there. Journal on the iPhone. You can pick those apps. Weather, calculator, they don't. That's fair. But then, but there are some features like messaging the cloud that they recently did and key contact verification. How do they make that work on all those platforms? So I would like to see a little bit inside that machine. Anyway, should we move fair. on because we are going long? As usual, we're going long. So you want to tell us about Ted Lasso Series 3? So I rewatched Ted Lasso Series 3. I think I watched it when it came out. I enjoyed it. It was okay, but I, d- I didn't rave about it. Whereas, actually, I've watched it again very recently. I've watched all three seasons very recently, which is probably why I haven't got much in the media space. I actually really, really enjoyed it second time around, but it could have been much shorter. I think they, they did have a couple of filler episodes in there. They could have just tightened it up a bit, but enjoyed it, and I think they, they finished it well. Yeah, I don't have great memories of Ted Lasso Season 3. I don't know why. I I did take the time to watch it as I went along. It was better than Season 2. I I still think Coach Beard Goes Out Clubbing or whatever that episode is was just a very dull, boring episode of any television show, not just of Ted Lasso. Uh, And I think that that episode was an inflection point for me where it changed a little bit. And I'm like, this isn't the show that it was. The first season was such a high, they could never have stayed close to that, really. And I thought they ended it well. I thought Ted Lasso with Series 3 had a good ending. And there were a couple of very nice episodes involving Jamie Tarr and and, and Kent, Roy Kent that, that, that sort of hit quite well. But other than that, I didn't think it was a great season. But that's interesting to watch it again and get that feeling. Yeah, and I think there were bits I maybe missed. I just think it was... It was okay on the whole. It wasn't as good as season one. I did enjoy season two. I think it is the weaker one, but they ended it well, but they just had a little bit too much in the middle where they could have just, just trimmed it slightly and tightened it up. But I would recommend if, if ever you're on the fence around it, because it is still good. A bit more adult themed than I remember, so I had to be careful not to watch it when my children were around. Fair enough. Moving on, next story, and this is one I just think is fascinating. Disney has invested $1.5 billion in Epic Games with plans to build a new games and entertainment universe. Now, I put this in, I wasn't sure where to put this. I didn't know if it belonged in games or media or the news or what, but I settled on media because it's a media and entertainment universe. So did you see this story? Yeah, I did. And then I looked back over and I thought, actually, I'm not that surprised seeing that Netflix obviously are doing something similar in this space. They're, they're trying to get their game arm going. So this is all about growth, isn't it? What the what did Disney do to keep growing? They've bought nearly all, all the franchises they can buy. So I think it kind of makes sense. And obviously they probably want to get there before Microsoft snapped them up or <laughs> whoever it may be, because obviously Microsoft bought Blizzard recently or Activision. Um, they're both the same. Uh, so I'm not surprised at all in hindsight that they're doing this, because like I say, you look where Netflix is going, you look at what the other platforms are doing. I'd be curious to know how this is all going to work. Well, yeah. The thing that really makes me interested in this is probably Epic are a bigger company than Disney. 
probably. I wouldn't like to go in any great depth about it, but Fortnite is absolutely vast. The Unreal Engine is absolutely vast. Epic have a game store, and we were talking before when we were thinking Apple might buy Disney about how big media companies are compared to you know games and electronics uh, companies. So Epic is not small. They've certainly got lots of money to take Apple to task in, in court and things like that. So they're not short of money, Tim Sweeney and his cohorts. But the real thing I was thinking about is Apple and Disney have always been quite close. The Vision Pro is full of Disney content. So, you know, it's got a special thing for Avengers Tower you can watch the Disney movies in and et cetera, et cetera. Apple and Epic are not very close there. I've got a very contentious history. And in fact, Epic aren't allowed to develop on Apple platforms because they had their developer certificates revoked. So how do Apple feel about Disney chucking a bunch of money Epic's way? And what happens when Disney go, this new game of ours is entirely built using Epic technology. We're going to put it on there. Or it's based in the Fortnite universe. Apple, you must bend and put it on there. I think that's quite interesting. You're right, that is interesting, the optics of this. It'd be interesting to know who from Disney phoned up Tim Cook and went, we might, we know we're your best buddy, but we might be investing in somebody that's not your best buddy. I hope you're okay with that. Bye. So, yeah, really interesting, I think, how this is going to, how the optics will play out, I guess. Yeah, and my, my final thought on this, and I think it's, oh gosh, I've forgotten the name of the show. You'll have to come back to me. The Rob McElhaney show, Epic Epic Quest, Raven's Quest, Things Banquet, that, that TV show about a computer game development company on, on Apple TV, which is really great, actually, and worth watching. Um, Raven's Quest, something Banquet, isn't it? Um, I think the games within that are from Unreal Engine. <laughs> oh, so, really? Yeah, I think so. They just do clips when they're sort of go- segueing between the characters in it occasionally of that. Maybe I'm wrong and maybe it's Ubisoft, but I've got a feeling Unreal Engine is involved there somewhere. So already Apple have got a relationship with that company, potentially, that's quite contentious. So yeah, I think this is quite a fascinating story and definitely worth watching. Let's keep an eye on this one. And at what point are Disney just going to outright buy them? It's interesting they've invested, like Microsoft invested in OpenAI, but it just seems odd, especially if they become more reliant upon them further down the road. Definitely. And sticking with Disney, and I'm not sure what to make about this. I don't know what your feelings are about the, the first generation, the second generation of Star Wars films, but apparently The Phantom Menace is about to land back in the cinema. And all I can say is, no! Yeah, it is interesting, this one. Um, my son actually quite likes some of these movies. So he may be happy to go see it on the big screen, but equally, I think he's quite happy just to watch it at home. I'm surprised, but Disney seems to be doing this quite a bit at the moment because they've put a few Pixar films through the cinemas. I think it's Soul and Turning Red and Luca, which obviously came out in more of a streaming pandemic era and they're trying to re-release them. I just wonder, is it worth it? Is is the effort worth it? Are enough people going to go and watch it? I understood before because it was largely things that had come out in the pandemic. So fair enough. But... There was no pandemic when Phantom Menace was on, unless it was a pandemic of bad cinema. But yeah, this is a bit odd. Yeah, it is a bit odd. Maybe people, maybe they think, you know, 20 years or 25 years down the line that uh, people have calmed and warmed to it a little bit more, maybe. I don't know. Um, I think it is bizarre. It's not like it was, you know, held up as a classic film of all time. No, it's not. But maybe your children's generation and my children's generation looking at it a little more warmly than we did. Yeah, definitely. I've seen it my 10-year-old does. Fair enough. Moving on, I've put a little link in the show notes to my reference to No, by the way. I think it was actually the third film, not not the first one, but moving on. Masters of the Air, I have watched three episodes of it now. I started the fourth one. I switched it off after 10 minutes. I don't know if that tells you all you need to say about it, really. You did better than me, but I'm gutted because I was quite looking forward to it. Yeah, it's a shame, isn't it? 
it is a shame. It had such potential, but I'm not the only one. I think all the reviews have, have borne up what we've said. It's just a bit dull, and that's a real shame because it is a story worth telling. You know, it's a really important point in history. I, I understand why the focus is on the, 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 the American side of that rather than, you know, the, what the Royal Air Force did with Lancasters. And, and even from a German perspective, a story telling what it would have been like to be under those bombs or something like that would be a fascinating and an interesting take on history, I think. There's so much potential for learn your lessons from history that could be taught from something like that. But they, and they give us this slightly dull, soapified CGI fest. It's a shame. Yeah. I think you, yes, I think you've summarised it quite well. It is a shame. It's just a, what could have been a fantastic story is not. Yep. Fair enough. Criminal record. I had fervently hoped the last episode I watched, which was episode six, was the last one. It's not. There's another one. I'm quite upset about that. It's, again, avoid criminal record. It's, it's again, just a shame about some good talent, some good uh, acting, some good music, and then heavily wasted by the most boring procedural problems uh, around it so avoid i will watch the seventh one because i'm going to finish the damn thing now i know i shouldn't waste my time on it but i've watched this much i want to finish it have you watched mr and mrs smith yet i've watched the first episode of mr and mrs smith surely that's a better investment of your time okay i'm glad you're nodding because for a minute i was worried you can go no no, I, I really liked the first episode of Mr. and Mrs. Smith, Mr. And Mrs. Smith actually. Uh, good chemistry between the leads, interesting idea of what's going on. I quite like the, the sinister agents in the background with a hi-hi. Yeah, there's, there's a lot to recommend about that show and looks fantastic. I mean, it's beautifully shot. Yeah, the picture quality is absolutely stunning. Um, and I remember saying the same to my children when you watch Grand Tour, just the, the quality of some of the, this, the, the of what they've captured is just blows my mind how, how sharp it looks. I know it's been streamed to me, but really good. And I've really enjoyed it. I'm only about halfway through Mr. and Mrs. Smith, but would definitely recommend. I don't know how it's going to end, but it's just just quite an interesting concept. I think they've done it in a really nice way. No, I'm enjoying it. And I would say I got the Amazon advert uh, warning at the start, watch out for adverts, and then they didn't give me an advert. So I was quite happy about that. I've only had one thus far, which annoyed me, but we'll see how it goes, I guess. Uh, yep. And then just very quickly to finish, for some reason, the other night I watched The Muppets, the redone Muppets movie with Jason Siegel uh, on Disney+. Plus. I don't know what made me want to watch it, but what a great film that is, but what terrific music. I'm still a bit annoyed they robbed Tron, Reloaded, of the, and Daft Punk of the Oscar for Best Music in a Film. But it is a great thing. Brett from Flight of the Concords did the music for it. Just a lot of fun, that film. Yeah, it's fantastic, isn't it? I've watched that with my kids. It's a good family film. Love it. Yeah, it's great. Anything else in media? No, let's get into games. This is going to be super fast. So Microsoft are apparently going to bring Xbox games to PlayStation. We're going to get more details next week. This seems to be it's probably part of the Activision Blizzard deal, really, where they want to show willing. PlayStation have done this. You can get PlayStation games on Steam and on Windows PCs now. So I guess it makes sense the other way around. Surely it's got to be good all around because they're going to monetize their properties on more platforms. I know sometimes you want exclusive to sell hardware, but if you're not making much money on the hardware, surely you want to make money out of the game. So I'm looking forward to see what this brings. I know my son would love to play a bit of Forza, but whether that will come, who knows? I think you've got the right game in Gran Turismo anyway. And anyway, there's not, nothing else you need on PlayStation other than Call of Duty, and you can get that on Microsoft too. So I'll, I'll keep my strain-related thumb injury that I think I've caught as, as using the, the, the DualShock too much. It's not a DualShock anymore, anymore. What is it called? DualSense. DualSense, there we go. Yeah, the DualSense. Far too much time on DualSense. The current Season 2 update is very good on Fortune's Island. Not saying any more than that. Tell us about Threes on Steam. I think we've already talked about it, but Threes is now out on Steam. It's great. 
and it's only like three quid or something so there you go i do think it works really well on the iphone it is a, that's probably the right platform for it but i love this game and i'm glad it keeps giving i have no comment on threes on steam should we do a main show let's get into it i think we're gonna have a brief main show so we're gonna start with one password yeah so last year it must have been about a year ago you decided you were going to try and use the built-in apple password software for a week to see how that would go and it didn't go very well and you ended up back in one password but what i'm what i've seen over the last few months is sort of increasing issues with one password and federico vitici has said it quite well for me here on mastodon the other day but things not working with the safari extension both on ipad and on mac and I wouldn't say I've had the same issues, but I, I hit these little pain points every so often with 1Password where the built-in browser drop-downs for completing passwords and things like that overwrite the 1Password ones that hit behind it, and trying to get the 1Password thing to activate over the native one can cause problems. And I've seen it with other users as well, particularly with Safari, where you, it gener- suggests the strong password, and trying to get them out of using the strong password to use the one from 1Password or something like that can become very frustrating. So our corporate one is LastPass. I, I don't have a lot of good feelings about LastPass, and I make use of my own anyway, which is 1Password. But th- it doesn't matter what the thing is in the background. It's, they don't play well with browsers, no matter what it is you choose. And your experience of using the built-in ones doesn't seem any better either. So... Much as I love 1Password, I, I, I kind of want to take a glance to the side a little bit and see what alternatives are. As things like this, things like Casey Lissell was going on about how bad he finds the performance of the app. Now it's an Electron app compared to you know the way it used to be when it was a native Mac app and, and just bits and pieces around that. Plus the fact I'm paying whatever it is, 60 quid a year to Agile Bits to maintain my 1Password and it's somebody else's cloud. And as we always say, having it in somebody else's cloud is a problem. So... I just want to have a... I probably won't do anything. I might have an experiment for a week to see what else is out there, but I thought I'd look and see what other open-source password managers might be like. Okay, so it's always good to have a look around. So when I did try Apple's passwords out, I was just disappointed with the lack of features. Um, I'm by no means a 1Password power user. I think Apple's passwords is great for most people. My wife and my my family use it. I use 1Password. I get it for free because work pay for 1Password for work, but they're quite clever in that they go, you can have a free personal account, and so you can just redeem the cost of your, your personal account in essence. So I do do that. Would I pay for it? I probably would because I think it is better enough than Apple's built-in one. I haven't looked at the others. I find the apps pretty good. Like I've got them installed on all the places. I kind of wish I could have it on my PlayStation the other day. I was trying to sign into an EA account and the Epic accounts on my PlayStation for me and my son. Why, why can't I have a password manager on there? I, I've never really looked into it, but I've not looked at the others. I get 1Password's had issues, but what I have found with 1Password is that 98% of the time it's secure, it's, it's up. I don't mind just lob it. I often just nip into the app and grab the password and nip back. Again, that seems to be my de facto. I log in with my face. I just really like the app and it's been good for me. And I like the watchtower functionality where you can see new security features you might want to go and, you know, put 2FA on an account or they now support passkeys. I must confess, I haven't done much with passkeys yet. That's something that I do need to explore. Um, we've just gone passwordless where I work, which is kind of cool that you can log in and just, you know, use your phone to authorize it. So that's kind of where I'm at with it. I think it is worth looking around because. It's been top of the pile for a while, and there will be some challenges coming there. I don't know where I'd start there with your list. You've, you've put in Bitwarden, KeyPass, and NordPass. But for me, I think 
I don't want to store my passwords in my own cloud because I worry it wouldn't be secure enough. That's probably my, my concern there. I think that's reasonable. To your point about one password apps being good, and they are, don't get me wrong, I, I, I really do like one password. It's been an app of the week, uh, at least once, possibly twice, before we started keeping better track of such things. Um, and we've talked about it uh, at length, and I think it is a great application. I do occasionally struggle with its authentication stuff. The iPad app, particularly, I don't think is very good. It, I, more often than not, I need to type my password into it rather than doing the face authentication. All right, I don't have the latest and greatest iPad. It's last generation's iPad Pro with the M1. But the camera's good enough. It should be good enough to scan my face. It's good enough to unlock it. Why don't, Why won't it accept that? The, the iPhone app is a bit better. It normally sees my face. I can get onto it. And the Mac one, quite often, you know... I, Every two weeks, it seems to want to require a password again, which I'm fine with, but it seems to happen more than every two weeks. My, my feeling is that I have to enter my password rather than using the biometrics. I don't know, about every three or four days, it seems to pop up an awful lot. So it's one of those things you doubt yourself. As human beings, we don't always have the best sense of time. Maybe it was two weeks ago, but I just get the impression there's little bits and pieces where the edges are beginning to show. And their focus on enterprise is definitely losing some home centered features from the app and maybe little bits and pieces like that so again everything that you just said about one password is right they're more often than not they're up you feel like it's very secure i like the additional security features they get i like things like the ability to share passwords with people by text or one-time codes and all that kind of stuff that's built into one password but i don't think it hurts us to, to keep aware what else is going on you know we said from a very long time ago, the cost of getting out of an application is what you really need to think about. And occasionally it's worth thinking, how would I get out of 1Password? Because I'm super dependent on it. I've got lots of stuff in 1Password. And I think it's just worth that occasional put your head above the parapet and see what else is going on out there. Yeah, so listen to some of the things you've just mentioned, though, about how often it needs to look at your face. There are security settings where you can increase that. So you can have it to every 30 days. You can say never. That's obviously up to you what you want to do there. You can also say about how often you want it to lock. Because I remember I was getting prompted for it far too often. And so I did move that back. I think I went for monthly in the end. I, I Yeah, so I, I would probably recommend having a look at some of those. Um, I've just gone into settings on, on the Mac client and it says I've been a member of 1Password for seven years. I know to begin with, I used it very sparsely. Um, but actually, I did sit down a long, long time ago and go through every website and change all the passwords so they were all unique. And then a year ago, I went through and changed all my email addresses because I had moved over to a new platform. So um, I would definitely, I don't know what I would do. I think it is worth having a look around. I do wonder sometimes, and I've never tried it, can I actually export all my passwords out into a some form of spreadsheet and just print the things off so that I could have a paper copy to put in my safe? Because what happens if one password did go kaput? They do have various export options, but I'm, I've never tried to use them. So yeah, they do. They give you what... They give you one pucks, which is their own thing, and they give you CSV, which is pretty standard for these things. I wonder how it exports pass keys. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how that works. So I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to do that. It's like I say, CSV, just to put a hard copy in a safe. Or maybe I could use a line around USB stick to tie it back in and stick it on there, and then put that in the safe. But <laughs> I think, I think it is a good app. I think it's done and. It's got great investment, so it's well looked after. So that is one thing I would say for it. You know, it's got a commercial model backing up, whereas you, you do wonder sometimes if you pick a free one, how's it going to keep going? Um, I think it'll be interesting to see what Apple do this year with passwords. There's always been talk of it breaking out into its own app, but we've never really seen it. So is, is that going to happen? Um, I'm, I think that's where, if I went anywhere, I'd possibly go there, especially now they've just done 
the iCloud piece on Windows, as we talked about at the top of the show, that is that going to improve the password syncing as well? Um, so I, I'm not sure. I'm going to keep an eye on it, I think, is, is what I'm saying. But right now, I always stick with one password. Apple needs to be careful of their monopolistic tendencies right now, I would suggest. That is a problem, isn't it? I think we can call that a main show there and do an app of the week. Does that sound good to you? Yeah, let's do it. So app of the week, I've talked about it a couple of times. It's called Flurp, which is a spin on Mozilla Firefox. It's made by a Japanese company. It is open source. You can get in and you can see it. I just quite like it. It's a bit different. I like the fact you can configure the user agent to be Chrome on Windows and more websites work in it. They do the tree style tabs thing really, really well. So if you don't, in our era of wider than they are tall monitors, I want my tabs down the left-hand side, not along the top of my browser. Uh, and it does that really, really well. Uh, if, you open, if you're within a website and you open another link within it and it opens another tab, for want of a better word, you actually get a tr- within a tree down that. So you can actually work your way back up the tree to what you were. So it's a really nice little browser. Uh, I'm a big fan. It keeps updated along with the mainstream for Firefox proper. And it reports itself as Firefox, which means Firefox and Mozilla are getting market share as opposed to Chrome again. And I don't think any of us should be using Chrome browsers, even if it's just to give them a little bit of competition. So my app of the week is Flurp. Yeah, it does look good. I've not tried it and I'm trying to keep this podcast Mac very clean. So mate, I will pop that on my uh, MacBook and try that out. It looks really nice though. And I kind of like, kind of like the idea of all the customization. And I would be a little tempted to have a look at the source code just to see. I'd love to see how these apps are built because I've never made one like this. So yeah, it looks really good. And I, I do like the idea of the vertical tabs. I think that's, I'm amazed we haven't done that more f- earlier than now because we've all had wider screens for a long time definitely thing of the week thing of the week so i've gone for an app this week actually and the app i've gone for is called race capture app and it's on the ios and iphone oh and you sorry you can get it on your mac as well by the looks of it, it's just the ipad one it's a really cool little app if you're into formula one because it's got all the races loaded into it you can see split times and things i've not used it before but I have paid the developer £10 as I'm keen to see what it's going to be like for the 24 season that's just about to start. You can do a lifetime uh, subscription, which was £40, which means I'd have to use it for four years. And I thought, who knows? I don't know how good it is. So I've just signed up for the one year. But it just looked great. There's lots of detail in it. It's got all the races numbered. You can see where they are on the globe and how we're going to go around the world. It's got news in there. Um, and then, yeah, it will, it will have a lot more detail on the races and split times and, and things like that. So uh, if you're into Formula One, I would recommend it. And it looks it just looks a really cool app. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to playing with it. It looks like a proper passion project. It does. And the developer of it, I've seen him do other stuff. And I used to follow him, I think, on Twitter and things. And he's got a few other apps out there. Um, he, do, uh, he does vinyls. I think that was an app that I've played with before for, for playing albums and things. Um, but no, it just looks really good. Um, I can't remember how I stumbled across it, but um, that's what I'm trying at the moment. So I thought I'd put that in as thing of the week because I don't think I've had an app for a while. Good choice. I think we can call that a show, Chris. I think that's it. So thank you to everybody uh, for listening. And if you want to get into contact with us, Rod is at g5maniac at master.don.scott. I am at underscore cjp at master.social. You can watch us on YouTube. We probably need to come up with a short url for the youtube channel um, or you can drop us an email at wakefromsleep at protonmail.com talk to you next week chris cheers Rod. Mm-hmm.